The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. With expertise in more than 60 categories of collecting, its specialists will connect you with your passion. Find what defines you at bonhams.com. Hello and welcome to the Art Newspaper Podcast. I'm Ben Luke. This week we're looking at some of the great exponents of erotic art in the 20th century. Two of them among the most famous artists of the period and two more who've been too long neglected and whose importance is only now being established. Regular listeners will know that earlier in the year we previewed Klimt Schieler at the Royal Academy with one of the show's curators. Later in the podcast we return to the subject, this time with Jane Collier, the world's leading expert on Egon Schieler, who is about to publish an online catalogue resume of his work. But we kick off this week with Dorothea Tanning and Leonor Feeney, two artists who are involved with the Surrealist movement. They're celebrated in two current exhibitions, Feeney at the Museum of Sex in New York and Tanning at the Reina Sofia in Madrid. Alice Mann is reader in modern and contemporary art history at Cambridge University and the curator of the Tanning exhibition in Madrid. She's also the curatorial advisor on the Feeney show. I'm delighted to say she joins me in the studio. Alice, I wonder if you might start by setting the scene in terms of where these two artists fit in with the Surrealist movement. Well, Surrealism still tends to be viewed as a very um, a sort of short movement, one that dominated modern art in the interwar period, 1920s and 30s. And within that kind of canonical history, you find that women are effectively removed from the narrative. Uh, But these are two women who did turn to surrealism in 1936 with the first major show, MoMA, in New York. Uh, The fantastic art data surrealism exhibition there, which really put surrealism on a global map and attracted a lot of international artists, including women, to find it. So I think the... um, Often people seem to perceive surrealism as a story of a few white European males who dominated it, as I say, in the interwar period. But in fact, it's a movement which went on right up until the late 1960s and after. And when we broaden its boundaries, we find that the women are actually centre stage. Um, Let's begin by talking about Dorothea, because she's an American artist and she sees that uh, exhibition at MoMA, Fantastic Art, Dada and Surrealism, and it profoundly affects her. So she's making art immediately with a knowledge of surrealist achievement. Exactly. She's someone who uh, grew up in Galesburg, Illinois, so, you know, mid-America. And uh, she moved to Chicago to study art. That only lasted um, a few weeks where she was totally despaired at what they expect her to do in the Art Institute. She moved to New York where she was jobbing uh, as everything from a waitress to actually um, a designer doing advertisements. But for sure she described seeing this big 36 exhibition as something that just rocked her over, I think is how she described it, and where it opened up a world of possibilities, endless possibilities. How quickly did she assimilate what she'd seen in that exhibition into her own practice? Mm, This is um, a good... Uh, a good question in the sense that actually it wasn't as if she immediately turned into a surrealist overnight, uh, although the financial situation is something, again, that's worth keeping in mind in that she was working and working for department stores um, as a designer. So for Macy's, designing adverts for their gloves, their pearls, their perfumes in a surrealist style, which is why I've included them in the first room of the exhibition to show how this is where she sort of began turning to surrealism. But 1942 tends to be the year we uh, mark as when she confidently declared herself as a surrealist and turned to a surrealist style in a self-portrait called Birthday of 1942. 
um, which when Max Ernst saw in her apartment in New York, her small studio apartment on an easel, not yet finished, he um, immediately asked if he could include it on behalf of a committee advising Peggy Guggenheim in an exhibition of 31 women artists that was being shown in 1943. Again, big show of women artists in 43. And that's really what put her on the map in New York in 1942-3. Is it is it right that Max Ernst actually helped her title that work? Yes. So the it's a it's a nice story because she describes Max Ernst as her Christmas present when he comes one snowy December day to her apartment. And um, the other thing to note is she was married. He was married. Um, and he saw it and asked what the title was. And she said she hadn't yet titled it. And he suggested birthday. And of course, um, she was 32, um, but it really meant her birth as a surrealist. He also noted that she had an image of chess near her um, easel, asked if she played chess. And so the romance began because he invited himself back to play a game of chess. What is it about chess and surrealism and Dada? <laughs> well, I think I love the motif of chess. And in fact, in the exhibition, there's the second gallery space. I didn't want to do something sort of about sort of dissecting up a woman artist, who were her lovers, who were her friends. So I've used the motif of chess to show how they shared a sense um, of game, of play, of the ludic. But the other thing about chess is that it's a language which crosses boundaries and languages, national and international at a time of war. And um, I mean, Marcel Duchamp, obviously, as the great chess player representing France, no less, um, meant that he and the circle were all great um, fans of, of chess. But as I say, it literally did create a space which brought them together. And for a huge show in 1944 at the Julian Levy Gallery, Duchamp, Max Ernst, um, Dorothea, they came together, Mural Streeter, to produce works on the theme of chess. And I think the idea of strategy and being used by an avant-garde, as I say, in a kind of irrational way, um, the idea of mastery and skills was something that they twisted so that it had a nice data surrealist subversive effect, but also at a time of war. What I find remarkable about Dorothea's work is, is how quickly she is she adopts a mature style that like so from those paintings in 1942 and 43 it seems like her whole world is is fully accomplished and enriched is, is that your sense about her well i think there's um again it's worth thinking about whether we'd sort of almost say the same thing about a male because there's an audacity that we often associate with gender and for her she's somebody working in a her 30s. She's been producing art for over 10 years. She's fabulously well read. Uh, and I think what's interesting is how she's part of this circle, this avant-garde circle in New York and then Arizona, who are all mm -hmm. talking about literature and ideas and art and battling against the move towards abstraction um, at the time, because this is the moment when we think New York stole modern art from Paris. Jackson Pollock is moving in and there's a new uh, informal abstract approach to surrealism. And certainly she was someone who produces a gorgeous, meticulous surrealist style. Um, you might, you know, think of someone like Salvador Dali in the sense that it is very, um, uh, very detailed uh, oil paintings. Although I think the other thing is to keep in mind is that that style is coming from her role in advertising design, her illustrator role. Um, so there's an individuality there in terms of her particular style, the subject matter she turns to, the fact it's all very domestic. And at the same time, the fact that surrealism is holding its own ground desperately, stylistically, philosophically and politically at this time when people think that with trauma, war, you can only do the abstract.
Tell me about some of the motifs that develop in her work, because there's, for instance, there's the sunflower and the doors, which is obviously the, in the title of your exhibition. Yes, so the door is the motif. Uh, I mean, and the door, again, is quite a data surrealist uh, motif. The door, which is a jar. So one of the points I make is that it's not the open door in the sense of being able to see what's going to happen, nor the close, which would divide private from public. But it's the idea of a door being a jar swinging slightly, the artist holding it on one side and perhaps the viewer on the other. Um, Because, again, that gets into the idea of space and sexuality and the private and public and how these are being explored by an artist and by a collective movement. So in her work, what's interesting is we do have the motif of the child, the femme enfant, the little girl, which people might have seen before in Max Ernst, in Salvador Dali, uh, in other artists' work. But she tends to represent this sort of Victorian child, an Alice in Wonderland type child, um, enraged, wreaking havoc on the domestic space, not in a kind of passive dreamscape, or at least not in terms of how I see it or stage it. Um, But the child and the sexuality of the child, which of course they were interested in, uh, and which Freud writes beautifully about, is something that's being explored by this woman artist. But there are other motifs, and they tend to intertwine through, as I say, a notion of space. So you have the family. uh, She's got images, you know, a work called Portrait, Family Portrait of the mid-1950s, where you have a gargantuan, rather absurd father figure. Uh, We have a, a whole room which has tables with these beautiful white tablecloth, which she writes about in her journals and her memoir as kind of the sign and symbol of family order. And of course, in her canvases, they become landscapes for the bizarre, for the surreal. So a still life, a domestic table, roses and their phantoms, as the name of the work is from the Tate collection, for example. Uh, We find objects uh, morphing into rather bestial, crazy uh, details uh, before our eyes, which is again where her great skill and subject matter come together. So you see metamorphosis almost happening, tricking the eye in the canvases. Uh, There's also the theme of ballet from the 1950s, of movement and touch on the body, um, and the architectural uncanny, because um, in the mid-1960s, Tanning turned to soft sculpture, to hand-sewn sculpture that she sewed on her Singer uh, sewing machine. And she created little... Objects first, like Pincushion to Serve as Fetish from 65, which is in the Tate collection. Uh, And 10 years later, she produced a gargantuan in 1979, a huge, big version of this same Pincushion, which is the size of a large uh, sofa. And then, of course, she goes, she takes it even further and makes it, it makes an installation at a room scale. Tell me about that work, because it's an extraordinary thing. Yes, so this is Hotel du Pavot from 202, which was produced, uh, made by her between 1970 and 73 for um, her first retrospective exhibition uh, in Paris in 74. And she described it as perhaps her greatest surrealist masterpiece um, because it brought a lot of her ideas together in the third dimension. And it is a room, a three-sided space, that the viewer enters um, where, um, but it's a hotel room where you have figures, bodies, limbs emerging out of the walls and the wallpaper of the rooms. Um, again, that theme of metamorphosis literally being staged before the eye and sculptures and a, um, a fire piece and a chimney again bulging with animal or feminine limbs. Um, It's all handcrafted by her, detailed obsessively by her in terms of the wallpaper having to be dark and dingy. And we had great fun installing this and staining it with tea, tea bags, (laughs) make sure it had that sort of um, 
uncanny edge, the light bulb, which had to be sort of bald, naked, miserable looking, uh, and the rug. And it's there very much, I mean, it's something that might strike people as rather cinematic, you know, Hollywoodian and Hitchcock sense. We wonder what's going on. There are clues. Again, that's a little bit of the chess player. So you've 202, the number on the door. It's a jar. So you see a door, but the door leads nowhere. It's a dysfunctional door. Um, and you're not sure what the narrative is. It transpires, however, that there is a story behind it. There's a popular song behind it, one about a, a Chicago gangster's mall who uh, committed suicide in a hotel room. So there's a lovely popular story behind it, as well as the fact, of course, that it takes on a much more surrealist edge about space. And again, this idea of opening a door to fantasy and trying to encourage spectators then and today to open up to a new experience and that being at the heart of what an artwork should be about. Ever since the 1980s and when Whitney Chadwick um published her very important book about women artists and the surrealist movement the women involved in surrealism have tended to be grouped together but Dorothy was very resistant to be to being seen as a woman artist didn't she there's a quote by her which is quite telling yes yeah, so I've included I, I put that quote actually in the wall of the exhibition space at the Rena Sophia at the very end of it where we've got works from the 80s and 90s because I felt it was important to note her own idea of self-fashioning, what she wanted to be remembered for, but also to complicate how we uh, talk and curate shows about women artists. And she said, women artists, there is no such thing. Our person is just as much a contradiction in terms as man artist or elephant artist. Why? Well, because she said, you may be a woman and you may be an artist, but the one is a given and the other is you. And that idea that she didn't want the label of woman or people perceiving going a priori into an exhibition and looking for the gender tropes, looking for the gender argument, I think was part of why she didn't like the label woman artist. But also by the late 1980s, and she said this in 1989, um, she was nervous of being sort of sucked into a particular feminist narrative, a feminist movement of the 70s and 80s, and almost all the work she had done being um, neglected, um, are being misrepresented in other ways. Let's now move on to Leia Norfini. There is an intriguing link uh, between Dorothea Tanning and Leia Norfini in the sense that Max Ernst, who was married to uh, Dorothea Tanning for more than 30 years, was also quite important in the career of Leia Norfini in the sense that he encouraged Peggy Guggenheim to acquire The Shepherdess of the Sphinxes, which is a really major work by Leia Norfini. And in fact, Guggenheim was resistant and, and, and suggested that she only really bought it because of Max Ernst's enth- enthusiasm. Um, it brings me to the question of how important were the male surrealists in terms of furthering the development or, or the appreciation of the work of the women connected to the surrealist movement? I think with a figure like Max Ernst, he was certainly uh, very keen on discovering younger artists, as was André Breton, um, and in including international women artists into the fold uh, and during the war. Um, These are women artists who always stress that they knew about art, let's say, before they met the male artists. Um, and were well-read, had lots of ideas, disagreed with what they described as orthodox realism often. But they were also um, artists who, of course, wanted success desperately and who had probably rejected every aspiration of their family in deciding to move to New York, to Paris, to whatever big city and to devote their lives to art. And so they were very happy when someone like André Breton or Max Ernst wrote a catalogue essay for them, as any young artist would be, if you like, when you have a 
an artist uh, acknowledging why their art should be recognised. But I think perhaps the more interesting thing is when you read the essays by the artist. So yes, they support them, but they often will be very discerning, Max Ernst in particular. Um, so with Feeney, he'll talk a lot about her exploration of mythology, her role in terms of her exploration of the Sphinx. So it's not a broad brush that he's using. Uh, equally, when he writes an essay for Dorothy Tanning for her first solo show in 1944 at the Julian Levy Gallery, he makes the point that at a time when art is turning to the abstract, here is an example of an excellent surrealist who is um, producing art which represents the world, where it's at, not individual, not a little woman locked up in her in her studio, but very much um, an image which represents surrealism at a time of war and which is holding firm. So again, if we look at what they say closely, we get a sense of why they want these artists who happen to be female into in the circle um, and how surrealism knew uh, full well that actually uh, the passion of youth was something that they needed and they harnessed it right up again, as I say, until the late 1960s, where they were constantly inviting younger artists, male, female, heterosexual, queer, homosexual, lesbian, the whole sort of global profile is there, not sliced up in that way, however, because they hated being labelled for anything and everything. But they always turned to younger people to see how they could remain relevant because their idea was surrealism was not a style. It was a philosophy, it was a political position uh, and that's what had to constantly give it its edge and ensure it didn't get sucked into um, some kind of museum market um, label. That's right, so the sort of radicality of, of surrealism gets lost to a certain degree with its sort of in, insistent insertion into the sort of canon. Um, Leonor was a very distinctive artist, wasn't she? A very original uh, maker of images. Yes, yeah, so Leonor Fini, I mean, born in Argentina, growing up in, in Italy, um, she was exhibiting in New York in the mid-1930s and in Surrealist shows later. So she is interesting, however, in her emphasis on the fact that she thought the male Surrealist, she was very vocal about people like Breton being not, not quite idiots, but um, very uh, misogynistic, having very poetic ideas, which she didn't agree with. And yet she again exhibited often with Surrealists uh, and, of course, engaged with the debates and wanted her side to be heard. She was more... Uh, vocal about not wanting to be described as a woman artist. However, she said that was a worse ghetto than any notion of surrealism. Um, and what's interesting with Norfini and the exhibition we've done at the Museum of Sex in New York is to see specifically how she deals with sexuality as performance and how surrealism offered her uh, a means to uh, expand the boundaries of what is to be male or female. She herself said that she um, viewed herself as androgynous. Now we might describe that as a kind of non-binary position in, in different parlance, if you like. But then she said she was uh, androgynous and she presents passive, beautiful, handsome males in her art. Also very androgynous. Yes, uh, although I would argue that they, some of them are very androgynous and others are just very beautiful objects of desire. Um, they're not... Uh, armoured, muscular men, but they are her muses. Um, and so we've a tendency to presume if they're sleeping and, and nude or naked, whichever term you're using, um, that that makes them androgynous and possibly homoerotic. Whereas, in fact, she lived in a menage a trois. She had two male lovers. She had a circle of a community of, of friends and lovers and just offered a very different lifestyle. Uh, and she could explore this in her self-portrait and her portrait of lovers and showing women then as these kind of viragos, Amazonian creatures. Uh, and again, because she felt mankind and masculinity 
had only led to destruction and war. And therefore, if men didn't seize their feminine halves, their feminine imaginations, this uh, cycle would only continue. So you have an idea of woman and the feminine being something which we all share. Uh, it's a more Jungian perspective um, in that we have both the feminine and masculine in us. And this being a better route out of World War, which, of course, she was surviving. That's right. And she was right in the heart of Europe when war was raging around her. Down south and in Rome and uh, witnessing fascism uh, and again witnessing her, one of her close friends, Leonora Carrington, having to flee France uh, and move to Mexico. And really, um, this was this is where, again, the friendship between female surrealists is crucial because they supported each other. In, in letters and fabulous correspondence, in sharing ideas, but also they took radically different trajectories in terms of how they turned surrealism into their own life stories and own styles and agendas. Um, but certainly with someone like Fini, we see how her exploration of sexuality is performance. She explored the writings of the Marquis de Sade, Jean Genet. So she, again, great writers that the surrealists also championed. Um, so she bravely went where many didn't dare to go in the 1940s in particular and remained true to her ideas through to the 1980s. Again, a long career and an artist who um, is long overdue this kind of uh, major survey show. She too had that amazing illustrative style that, 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 that Dorothea had. The images are like... I'm, I'm going to use that Dali term, but but like dream photographs, there's an element of that sort of uh, almost photorealist quality to her images too. Yes, that's true. Um, and it's interesting because the advantage of a major monograph show is we get to see many styles within the one artist's work, although we still perhaps... Uh, tend to understand surrealism as something which does trick the eye, which seems to be so heightened uh, in terms of its illusionism um, and that we align with Dali. But uh, in terms of skill and her illustrative and her fine line, yes, Fini was um, unparalleled, I think, in the surrealists in that sense. Um, You mentioned the images of the Sphinx. We can't talk about Feeney without delving into this area. There are so many images of the Sphinx in various different uh, permutations. Um, what, what did the Sphinx mean to her? Well, what I find interesting is that a lot of the uh, male surrealists turn to the story of Oedipus, okay, which is where we get, of course, the figure of the Sphinx, because Oedipus's challenge is to solve the riddle of the Sphinx. However, where male artists obsess over the narrative of the the young man killing the father, bedding the mother, what the women surrealists, and particularly Leonor Fini, focus on is the idea of just the Sphinx, who controls the riddle, who is the person who guards the city, who is, uh, and the fact that she is a figure of, of knowledge and she's a mythological creature, a virago creature. And of course, that's where they find their self-portrait. The males might see themselves in the young man killing the father and the women see themselves very much in the, the Sphinx creature who usually has the, the bust of a woman um, and yet the head of a lion and, and is this sort of conglomerate of, of creatures, mythological, um, and which gives them the potency. So what do you think in the end is the aim of these shows that you're curating? Well, for me, what I hope is that people realise that through an exploration discovery for some um, of Leonor Fini and Dorothea Tanning, respectively, that they'll not just discover women and all they produced over 70 years, but have a much broader, sophisticated idea of surrealism itself. These are artists who open the doors to surrealism beyond the canonical and hopefully um, will excite people who think they knew what surrealism is all about, but certainly will find there's a hell of a lot more to it. 
Well, both of these artists are enormously fascinating. Thank you so much for talking to us about them both. Thank you. Dorothea Tanning, Behind the Door, Another Invisible Door, is at the Reina Sofia in Madrid until the 7th of January, and it tours to Tate Modern, where it opens on the 27th of February next year. Leonor Feeney, Theatre of Desire, is at the Museum of Sex in New York until the 4th of March. We'll be back talking about Klimt and Sheila after this. When Henry Moore visited the Trocadero Museum in Paris in 1922, he was bowled over by a 9th-century Toltec Maya sculpture. The encounter had an immediate impact on his work, most clearly in the Mask series, the 12 small carvings with the same title that Moore completed in the mid to late 20s. One of these is a highlight of Bonham's Modern British and Irish Art Sale on the 14th of November. According to Bonham's Director of Modern British Art, Matthew Bradbury, it's the most visually appealing and beautiful carving of the series, and the only one made from alabaster. Once owned by Felix Salmon of the Lion's Corner House dynasty, Mask is being offered for sale for the first time in more than 80 years. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Welcome back. On the 4th of November, the Royal Academy in London opens its exhibition Klimt Schiele, drawings from the Albertina Museum Vienna. It features around 100 works on paper by the Austrian artists who both died 100 years ago. The curator and art dealer Jane Callier wrote a catalogue essay for the Royal Academy show, as well as for the Schiele exhibitions now on at the Belvedere in Vienna and the Fondation Louis Vuitton in Paris. Our senior editor, Nancy Kenny, went to Callier's New York space, the Galerie Saint-Étienne, to talk to her about the two artists. This here is the centenary of both Clint and Sheila's deaths, and there seems to be quite a flurry of activity surrounding it. Both artists are certainly a big draw. How do you explain their popularity today? Well, I think you have to separate the two. The popularity of Sheila in many ways relates to a different sensibility than Klimt's popularity. Klimt, uh, at least in his paintings, is a far more decorative artist. Uh, and I think he uh, appeals to a taste for beauty and luxury and a kind of a, a lost glamour. Uh, whereas Sheila throws us into the abyss. He's, he's uh, confronting the more frightening, more negative aspects of human existence. That said, they do have certain commonalities, uh, particularly in their interest in sexual subject matter and their very forthright treatment of that topic. So both Klimt and Sheila died in 1918 in Vienna. Klimt from the after effects of a stroke and Sheila in the Spanish flu pandemic. So Sheila was almost 30 years younger than Klimt. So when exactly do we find them overlapping artistically? Sheila was really a kind of a, a prodigy. So even though he was only 28 when he died, uh, he was exactly half Klimt's age. He was, Klimt was 56 and he was 28. Uh, but because Sheila was so exceptional, he had met Klimt probably around 19, somewhere between 1907 and 1909 is, is the best guesstimate. And Klimt was 
the first and greatest influence on Sheila artistically above and beyond their personal interactions. By that time, Klimt was no longer part of the Vienna secession, was he? I mean, what, what was his status in the Vienna art world? Klimt had left the Vienna secession with a group of like-minded colleagues in 1905. Uh, and Sheila first came to Vienna as an art student in 1906. So Klimt, uh, by the time their paths crossed, would have been working more or less independently, uh, taking on commissions from various uh, wealthy patrons within Vienna society. In your catalog essay for the show, you write that Klimt was a role model and mentor for Sheila. Do you find Sheila in imitating Klimt early on, and how so? Sheila, well, there are two ways in which the the function of mentor or role model uh, impacts on Sheila. One is artistic. And in 1909, when Sheila made his debut in Vienna, he actually was running around town calling himself the Silver Klimt. He was doing these paintings that look very much like Klimt portraits, except he couldn't afford gold leaf, so he did them in silver paint. Uh, but by 1910, you are seeing less direct influence of Klimt on Sheila's art, but a lingering influence in terms of the way Sheila viewed his artistic mission as someone whose primary goal it was to deliver an existential statement about the human condition. And that's something that he had learned from Klimt and that remained important to him to the end of his days. So it wasn't an enduring hero worship for Sheila? No, I think it, it, it was a great deal of admiration and respect for Klimt, but very early on a recognition on Sheila's part uh, that he was his own guy and, and going his own way. And how did Klimt feel about Sheila's early work? It's, that's very hard to say because there is this myth that surrounds the personal relationship between Klimt and Sheila, and it was something that Sheila played up, and it was something then that his biographer, Arthur Rosler, played up, and everybody wanted to say that Sheila was someone special to Klimt, or that Sheila was as special to Klimt as Klimt was to Sheila. It's hard to know how much truth there was in that, because Klimt was a really nice guy. And if you look at Klimt's relationship to all of the young artists of Sheila's generation, you find that he was very, very generous and encouraging to many of them. So I don't know how special Sheila was within that context. When you look at the drawings as a whole, Klimt's female subjects seem more passive, maybe, and delicate, uh, and somehow sealed off for us, whereas Sheila seemed to jump out at you. I think that's absolutely accurate, and I think that the confrontational aspect of Sheila's female nudes is what makes his work so radical and, and so shocking even to audiences today. There is this tradition that goes back centuries in Western art 
of taming the nude, ma ma making the female subject into an object, a passive object for male enjoyment. And you very much see that kind of passive voyeurism in Klimt's drawings, where, as with Sheila, it's not that Sheila is a feminist, he was a typical male of that time, but I think because he was so young, he was actually able to acknowledge uh, his own fear of, of this mysterious female creature. And in doing that, to free her uh, and grant her full autonomy over her sexuality in a way that older male artists didn't do. Well, they both seem to embrace eroticism then in their drawings in the same period. And many of those drawings were probably controversial at the time, weren't they? They, they were controversial at the time, uh, but what you have to understand is that, uh, first of all, they, the drawings weren't exhibited that often. Uh, either Klimt's or Sheila's. When they were, yeah, there were problems. Uh, but drawing was considered a more private art form. And so you could make erotic drawings and you could kind of sell them uh, not exactly on the slide, but you could you could sell them to your uh, your clients, and it wouldn't create a stir so long as they weren't out in the public domain. So they didn't circulate widely. Uh, there, I mean, there certainly are incidents both with Klimt and Sheila where the works were exhibited and, and, and caused trouble, but both Klimt and Sheila focused in their public exhibitions on the paintings, on their paintings, and, and Sheila uh, did consider his paintings his more important vehicle for creating, uh, you know, sort of the, the grand artistic statement that he wanted to present to the public. The drawings were more for his own use, and the same goes with Klimt. So Klimt's drawings were more like studies for the paintings. That's right. And Sheila's seem to stand almost as autonomous works of art. Sheila's do stand as autonomous works of art and were always collected as such, whereas Klimt sold very, very few of his drawings. Sheila was always able to sell his drawings more easily than the paintings. With Klimt, it was the other way around. Oh, so they were meant to be sold individually, the drawings? Well, I don't know. Meant sounds as though they were made for sale. They weren't made for sale. They were made for Sheila, just as Klimt's drawings were made for Klimt. But it turned out that people then wanted to buy them. Well, just to back up a little bit, they both seem to have been hugely prolific as draftsmen. Uh, did they undergo conventional academic training, both of them? They both did, yes. Klimt went to the School of Applied Arts, and Sheila went to the Academy of Fine Arts, so he had a, a slightly more, what should I say, rigorous academic training than Klimt, but on the other hand, he dropped out, so he didn't complete his, his academic training. But drawing from life was important to both of them? Oh, yeah, absolutely, yes. Okay. Unlike Klimt, uh, Sheila apparently was unable to afford models, wasn't he? Sheila could not afford models until the last two years of his life, and so he had these sort of quasi-model girlfriends. 
How did he manage that? Well, you have to look at this within the context of uh, the society at that time. You had, Vienna was just rampant with prostitution. And young men, men Sheila's age, in their 20s, were encouraged to frequent prostitutes uh, in order, I guess, to gain sexual experience, but also because they were not expected or even really permitted to marry until they had established themselves professionally, until that is to say they could support a wife. So you had these guys who were, were sort of cast in the sexual limbo until they were in their at least mid to late 20s. And during that period, the idea was that they would um, frequent, you know, these, these prostitutes or shop girls or cabaret performers, w women who were at that time, you know, sort of in what would have been classified as wanton professions. So this sort of ambiguous sexual personal relationships with, with girlfriends who were not exactly Sheila's social equals and whom he didn't really ever expect or intend to marry. This was not unusual at the time. In fact, on the contrary, it was expected. At one point, he got into trouble over a model, didn't he? Did he? He didn't get into... No, what happened was that because he couldn't afford to pay models, he would ask vagrants on the street to pose for him. And those could have been young prostitutes or they could have been street urchins. And, you know, if you have a, a, a beggar child, basically, in a metropolis like Vienna, you can persuade the kid to pose just for, you know, a, a few coins, spare change, or, or a bit of candy. Uh, but Sheila also liked children. He was not that old himself. Uh, so he had still very much an adolescent mentality. And when he moved from Vienna to the countryside, and he was staying with his girlfriend at the time, Vali Neutzel, in the provincial town of Neulenkbach, he continued to draw the local children, and the children would come to his studio and hang out after school, and it was, you know, it was kind of cool, you know, this grown model and his girlfriend, it was all... And one of these kids ran away from home, and she came to Aegon and Vali's house and asked them to take her to her grandmother in Vienna, which they did. Uh, but when they got to Vienna, she got scared. She said, "No, no, no, take me home. I, I don't, I don't, I, I, I don't want to face my grandmother." Gonna... So they took her home. But by the time they got back to Neulenkbach, her father had filed charges of kidnapping and statutory rape. And even though she came back after a couple of days and everything was fine, the police now were on Sheila's trail, and they went to his house and they saw that he had drawings of nudes you know just tacked to the wall and 
they knew that kids had been hanging out. So that ultimately is what he was convicted for. The, the crime is called public immorality. And even though the drawings were hanging privately in his home, because the public, i.e. the children who were minors, had seen them there, that was considered a crime. Did he serve time in jail? He, they put him under um, what's called um, investigative arrest. You, you can hold someone in custody uh, while you are investigating a crime if you think that that person is going to try to influence the testimony. In this case, I guess they thought Sheila would try to contact the, the, the child. Uh, who wasn't a kid. I mean, she was like 13 or 14 years old. She was a teenager. Uh, so he was in jail for 21 days pending trial. Then he was tried and convicted of this one charge and sentenced to an additional three days, taking into account the time he had already served, so a total of 24 days. Now, Klimt died first, eight months before Sheila, in February 1918, mm -hmm. and at the time Sheila was only 28. Was he then viewed widely as Klimt's successor, in a sense? Uh, I think that he began to be viewed in that way, and, and to see himself in that way, uh, starting with his exhibition at the Vienna Secession in March 1918. Uh, so Klimt had just died. And Sheila made this fantastic poster for his show, which showed himself and his artist friends, uh, many of whom were also included in that secession show, seated around a table. And he had been working on this subject, the subject of the friends or around the table, for about a year and a half at that point doing drawings of it, doing uh, uh, paintings, doing a large gouache study. So it was a theme that he was working through. But in the final version that becomes the poster, you see him, and it's very clearly Sheila, even though it's quite a stylized figure, and he's at the end of head of the table. And at the foot of the table, there is an empty chair which it is said was a chair left empty for Klimt, who, who is no longer with us. But, but the, the secession poster certainly is a, a kind of a, an acknowledgment that he's taking the lead at that point. Uh, didn't he sketch Klimt after his death? He did. He, set, he sketched Klimt um, in the morgue, uh, I guess the day after he died. Were those drawings sold, or do they still exist today? They do, they do still exist, uh, and I'm trying to remember where they are. I think the Leopold Museum may own one of them. Now, your gallery mounted Sheila's first one-man show in the United States, didn't That's it? That's correct, in 1941. And you have a Sheila exhibition of your own that just opened. That's right, yes. Can you tell us about it? Uh, well, we are, of course... Uh, as, as being sort of the Sheila Gallery in America, having done the first show, we definitely wanted to commemorate the 100th anniversary of his death with an exhibition. And at the same time, uh, we wanted 
to launch the digital catalog resume. Uh, as you know, I wrote the first complete catalog resume of Sheila's work, the first to include his watercolors and drawings in addition to the, the paintings and graphic works, the prints, in 1990. And I did an update, an expanded edition in 1998. But that's 20 years ago. And what has happened in uh, those ensuing 20 years is that it's become increasingly clear that a catalog resume makes much more sense in an online platform uh, than it does in book form. So we've been working on the digitization of the Sheila catalog for a couple of years now, and we will, in early November, be launching phase one of the online Sheila catalog, which will cover the oils, the graphics, the sketchbooks, the sculpture, those, those four components. Well, thank you, Jane. Sure. Now, this year being the anniversary of Klimt's Sheila's deaths means that there are a number of exhibitions, so here are a few highlights. Klimt Sheila is at the Royal Academy from the 4th of November until the 3rd of February. Egon Sheila, the making of a collection, is at the Belvedere, Vienna, until the 17th of February. The Sheila exhibition at Fondation Louis Vuitton in Paris continues until the 14th of January. Jane Callier's exhibition, Egon Sheila, In Search of the Perfect Line, is at the Gallery Saint-Étienne in New York until the 2nd of March. And finally, Egon Sheila, The Complete Works Online, goes live on the 5th of November at egonsheilaonline.org. Phew. That's all for this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you're on Twitter, you can follow us at Tan Audio. That's at T-A-N Audio. You can also follow us on our main Twitter account and Facebook at The Art Newspaper. And on Instagram, you can find us at theartnewspaper.official. Thanks to Nancy Kenny and Jane Callier, to Alice Mann and to you for joining us. We'll be back next week with an Andy Warhol special. See you then. The Art Newspaper podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams. Find what defines you at bonhams.com.